You are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. We are currently working through a series called Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text pokes and prods us with the question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before the King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of 2 Samuel? We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. We're traveling through the book of First and Second Samuel, and last Sunday we worked through chapter 11 in David's great fall, and in chapter 12 the Lord intervenes. And so the sermon text this morning is Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 31. Let's give ourselves to God's good word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. 
How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was yet alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city, and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. He took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. In it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we call upon your great name, and we ask this morning that you would shine a light this morning that we might see your great grace for what it is. We want to see it as it is, and not only see it, but we want to once again taste it for ourselves in the gospel of Jesus. So would you be pleased this morning to do this great spiritual work of giving us sight and giving us spiritual taste so that we might commune with you and your kindness. So be pleased to do this for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Christians, we talk a lot about the grace of God. We sing a lot about the grace of God. We pray, or at least we should pray a lot for the grace of God. And as we think about it, grace is one of those words we use a lot in our Christian vocabulary. Perhaps it's one of the most common used words in our Christian vocabulary, along with like faith and hope and love. And I want to point out a particular danger we face in all of this. The danger isn't grace. God's grace is good and needed. But the danger is our perception of God's grace. Do we, as we, we speak of God's grace and sing of God's grace and pray for God's grace, understand the riches of God's grace towards sinners? Do we really, do we really grasp the freeness and the sovereignty of God's grace? And one sign that we've lost sight of a true vision of God's great grace is that we're no longer struck with the upsetting nature of grace. We, we no longer see it as something so different from the way this world works because grace is so different than the way this world works. Just as oil doesn't mix with water, so too God's grace doesn't mix with the way this world works. Just remember Jesus' ministry. Just call it to mind. 
As we watch Jesus minister in the Gospels, we see the freeness and the sovereignty of God's grace extended. The sinful come to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He, he welcomes them, he forgives them, he cleanses them. There we see God's grace. But this was radically upsetting to the world. As the world watched Jesus, he was called a glutton and a drunkard. Some even called him a blasphemer for the grace that he extended in his ministry. Or remember the Apostle Paul's ministry. He was a preacher of the grace of God. He went around expounding and expositing the riches of God's free and sovereign grace to one and all. And this message of grace that Paul taught was radically upsetting to one and all. Paul tells us of the response that his preaching received. He says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And so as we consider Paul's ministry, as we consider Jesus' ministry, and we see the grace of God flowing out, it's a matter of oil and water as the world interacts with this grace. The eye of sinful man looks upon the grace of God and is upset by the grace of God, often saying things like this, well, well God can't be like that, can he? That, that doesn't seem like true reality to me. I, ca I can't agree with that. In fact, that looks stupid to me. I don't want anything to do with this God of, of grace. It's upsetting to the world. It doesn't make sense. And so our need this morning as we come to the text of Scripture is to once again see the freeness and the sovereignty of God's grace for what it is. We just need to see how different it is, how striking, even how upsetting it is so that we might grapple once again with this grace. And when we grapple with it, we might even find refreshment in life for our Selves. And this is what 1 Samuel chapter 12 does for us. So, chapter 12 exists with chapter 11. They, they fit together in the same story. We broke it up because it's just impossible to, to wrap your arms around the whole thing. But in chapter 11, the focus was on David. Remember the story. David looked, David inquired, David took, David slept, David deceived, David killed, David sinned. And in the midst of all of this action, we saw David at his absolute worst. Think about it. He started by breaking the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then he proceeded to break the 7th commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And then he, in the midst of all of this, broke the 9th commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then finally, at the climax of this story, he, he breaks the 6th commandment. You shall not murder. There's no way to sugarcoat it. In chapter 11, David did what was evil, and because of what he did and how he did it, David did deserve death. He deserves death. And so we leave chapter 11 behind, and we pick up chapter 12, and in chapter 12, the focus changes to the Lord. Now, we have to understand that the Lord wasn't absent in chapter 11. The Lord saw and observed all that was David was doing. None of it escaped his watchful eye. Even more, as the Lord watched what David was doing, he rendered a judgment concerning what David did in chapter 11, verse 27. This is how the chapter ended last week. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now in chapter 12... It is the Lord, Yahweh himself, who takes action. The judge of all the earth is now going to draw near to David and begin to, to deal with him. The Holy One of Israel, the, the righteous one who only does righteousness, is drawing near to David and is going to deal with this sinner. And surprisingly, 
All that we find in chapter 12 is grace, is grace. And so the plan this morning is to consider the Lord's dealings with David in two chunks. In the first chunk, verses 1 through 15, we're going to look to see the grace of God as it is, wanting to see its freeness and its sovereignty. And our hope is, as we pray, is that God will reveal his grace to us. In the second chunk, verses 16 through 31, these verses are going to instruct us how we ought to apply, how we ought to use, how we ought to live with this grace of God that is both free and sovereign. So two chunks, we're wanting to see and then we're wanting to apply. And so let's start with the first chunk, we want to see. So as we look at verses 1 through 15, these verses are well known. As we think about the stories in First and Second Samuel, at the top of the list of popularity, there's, there's David and Goliath. We all know that story. And then just below it is David and Bathsheba, particularly this part where Nathan comes and starts dealing with David. We know this story well, and it's well known for good reasons. It's dramatic and moving. It stands out to us. And so these verses are well-worn, and before we enter into them, I want to set the text up so that we might see it with fresh eyes. So as you look at verses 1 through 15, there's a very simple structure at work. There's a high-handed sin committed, so David has sinned against the Lord, a, a, a flagrant sin, and so the Lord responds by, by sending a prophet, and the prophet confronts, and then judgment is administered. And as we think about this very simple structure we see in this chapter, sin, prophet, confrontation, judgment, we have seen this pattern already at work twice in the narrative. And I want to remind you because I think this is how the text is supposed to be read. So it first appeared this structure with the story of Eli. And so there's the high-handed sin. What was the high-handed sin with Eli? Well, his family held in contempt the Lord's sacrifices. And so what did the Lord do? Well, he responded by sending a prophet to Eli. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli. And then the prophet confronts Eli, exposing his sin. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So there's the prophet, and then there's the confrontation, and there is this harsh and severe word of judgment, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. And then we know how the story goes. We see it unfold before our eyes. Eli's house is destroyed according to the word of God. So there's the pattern the first time. It appears a second time, and it appears with Saul. And so Saul's high-handed sin was his blatant disregard for the word of the Lord. And so the Lord responds by sending a prophet, this time Samuel. And so Samuel comes and he confronts Saul. He exposes Saul's sin. 1 Samuel 15, verse 19. Samuel says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then this climaxes in a harsh and severe word of judgment. 1 Samuel 15, 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so we know how the story goes after this as well. After this point, Saul just goes downhill and ultimately the house of Saul is destroyed, just like the house of Eli is destroyed. 
So we've got this pattern at work, and now we can go back to our text. And we want to work through our text, remembering this pattern, how the story has set us up for this moment. And so in our text, David's high-handed sin is before us. We know it well. And so the Lord sends a prophet, just as he has done before, chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so Nathan confronts David, and he uses a story, this parable-like story. There's a, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has flocks and herds. He has much, but the poor man just has one little ewe lamb that he loves. Chapter 12, verse 3. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So the story's getting built up, the rich man and the poor man. The poor man loves this lamb, but what happens in the story? A visitor comes to the rich man, and the the rich man does not want to take one from his his own herds. Rather, he sees this one ewe lamb, he, he takes it, he slaughters it, and he eats it for himself with his guests. And obviously the story is made up. As readers, we understand that it isn't true, but but David falls for it. He becomes angry, and in his anger, he blurts out in verse 5, the man who does this deserves to die. And unwittingly, what David is doing is he's passing judgment upon himself. What does David deserve for his sin, what he, he did against the Lord and against his brothers and sisters in Israel? He deserved to die. Death. And Nathan leaves the story behind because the story has done its work. And he says in verse 7, you are the man. You are the man. So just step back for a moment. Think about the pattern. There's a sin. The prophet is sent. The sin is exposed. You are the man. What comes next? It's time for judgment. And we have expectations for this judgment. Eli sinned, and Eli died for his sin. Saul sinned, and Saul died for his sin. David sinned, and David should what? He should die for his sin. But listen to the text. Nathan begins to speak, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We go down to verse 13, and and Nathan continues to speak to David, and he says this, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We've been set up for this moment. Don't you see it? The pattern is broken. Eli sinned, and Eli died for his sin. Saul sinned, and Saul died for his sin. But David sinned, and what does the Lord promise through the mouth of Nathan in verse 13? You will not die for your sin." In fact, the Lord promises to put away David's sin, forgiving him and cleansing him of all the wrong that he had done. And while there's going to be discipline, severe discipline, and we're going to study it this week and in the coming weeks, David is not going to be excluded from the kingdom of God or his hold upon it. His house, while it's going to experience troubles, it will not be destroyed. It will endure forever. You will not die. And I think we're intended to wrestle with this. 
And the questions start coming to our minds. We ask, well, why this break with David? Why this different treatment? Why death for Eli? Why death for Saul? Why life for David? What is the difference with this? So we need to reason through this, and there's a few paths we can take to try to explain this. First, we could, we could reason. Well, David's sin was different. So David lives while these other men die because David's sin wasn't as bad as Eli's sin or Saul's sin. But I just don't think that works. Eva, Eli reviled the Lord. Saul also disobeyed the word of the Lord. And what's so interesting is that the same exact words, the same exact phrases from the story of Eli, from the story of Saul, are taken up and used by the prophet Nathan. Same vocabulary, verse 9, why have you reviled the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And the narrative is tipping us off saying, David's sin isn't any different than Eli's or, or Saul's. In fact, as a reader of Scripture, we could make a good case that David's sin is, is probably worse than the sin of these other two men. So that doesn't work. We could try to reason a different way, a second way. We could reason that David's response was different than Eli's and Saul's. And so we go to the text and we see it. Nathan comes to, to David and confronts him. And David immediately responds. Verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And so we're seeing something here. David doesn't equivocate or argue or play the blame game like, like Saul did when Saul was confronted by, by Samuel. David doesn't sit stagnant in his sin. Remember Eli, when he was confronted, he just sat there in his sin and he didn't do anything about it. And so we start to reason, well, well David is forgiven. Why? Because he responded differently than Saul and Eli. And we have to carefully think this through. There is a real difference between Saul, Eli, and David. And the difference is there emphasized in the text of Scripture. What David does with his sin before Nathan, before the Lord, is right and good and biblical and necessary. The word of the Lord came to David and he responded, I have sinned against Yahweh. That's good. But as we continue to think about this line of reasoning, it's not fully satisfying. In fact, it can get dangerous if we just stay at this level of reasoning. David is forgiven. Why? Well, answer, well, because David's repentance was, was better than Saul's. But we go back to the story of Saul, and he's confronted by Samuel. And, and what does Saul begin to do after he equivocates? He begins to repent. I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, we see a measure of earnestness. He starts to grab after Samuel so that Samuel won't leave him. And so we say, well, David is forgiven, and Saul isn't because David is more earnest because he was more serious, because his heart was torn and shred. And this starts to create a few problems for us because we start to see everything differently. Do you see where that goes? We end up staring at David, essentially saying David was, was better at repenting than Eli or Saul. And then we start to tacitly believe that somehow David contributed to his, his forgiveness or his atonement before the Lord through his earnest repentance. And if we believe this, and if you believe this in your heart, starts to do all sorts of terrible things with you. There's going to be doubt and anxiety. Maybe you're wrestling with this. Have I repented enough to be forgiven of my sins? Am I earnest enough to have a place in God's kingdom as one of his, his children? Is my heart sufficiently tore and shred for what I have done so that I might have assurance? 
Even, way, even worse, this way of thinking begins to keep us from, from God himself. We're, we're so busy staring at ourselves when we have this way of thinking. We don't see Christ crucified for sinners. We're so consumed with, the, with our thoughts that the word of the gospel is, is preached to us in the gospel of grace, saying your sins are forgiven, but our ears are just clogged up with our own thoughts, worrying about our repentance. And so we ask, well, what is the answer then? Why life for David? Why death for Eli and Saul? Well, the answer is this, it's God. And the text is calling us to turn our eyes heavenward. Specifically, we turn our eyes to God's grace and its freeness and its sovereignty. And just consider those words. We've been using them, throwing them about all morning in this sermon. Free, what does that mean? It means that God's grace comes to the sinner apart from any work, any contribution, any effort. Sovereign, that means that God's grace comes to the sinner at the discretion of God himself. He initiates, he bestows, he gives all according to his own good pleasure. It's his choice. And so we can ask the question again, well, what's the difference between Eli, Saul, and David? At bottom, it is not effort or earnestness. It isn't wisdom or folly. It isn't David. It is only God himself in his grace. That's what makes the difference between all of these different men. And the narrative itself clues us into this difference. Ruling over this entire narrative, ruling over David's life, ruling over David's sin, ruling over his repentance is God's gracious promise to David in 2 Samuel 7.16. What God has done in that chapter, he has bound himself to David in the covenant of grace forever, irregardless of what happens. The Lord says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What is controlling David's life? It is the covenant of grace. And nothing can separate David from the covenant of grace. And what's interesting is David himself clarifies this for us. And so we know Psalm 51. It's written in conjunction with this story. David is writing a song of repentance as he sorts his heart out before the Lord after this sin. And listen to what David says in Psalm 51, verse 1. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David is pointing the way for us in this text. David doesn't say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to my, my earnest repentance. He doesn't say, Blot out my transgressions according to my, my earnest Tears. What does David do? Well, in the psalm, he is going straight to God himself and banking on God's character, his mercy, his love, his grace. He says, have mercy on me according to what? Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And here, at this point, when we compare David with these other men, we see God's grace for what it truly is. The only matter that separates David from Eli and Saul is the grace of God and its freeness and its sovereignty. And we can just stop and think about ourselves for a moment. Believer, why are your sins forgiven? Believer, why are you located in Jesus Christ? Why are you situated in the covenant of grace? Why do you have a place in the kingdom of God? 
Why do the promises of God belong to you? The only answer we can give is the grace of God. We cannot point to ourselves or anything we have done or any quality about ourselves, but we point away from ourselves to God and we say, He is full of grace. That is why I have this place and am this person now. And this is what makes grace so unsettling and so different and often so troubling. God's grace doesn't depend upon our contributions. It doesn't wait for our initiation. It doesn't depend upon our cooperation. It doesn't need our intentions. It is sovereign and free. And at the very same time, this is troubling and unsettling. It is glorious and good, and it gladdens our hearts. Just think about it. Grace comes to us when we have nothing and are nothing, requiring no contribution from us, giving everything that we need for life and godliness. God in his grace comes to us. He gives us repentance and faith and forgiveness and life. It's free. God supplies it all. And God's grace wakens us and saves us when we're lost and dead, requiring no initiation on our part. It's wonderfully sovereign. And so we see the grace of God for what it is, and it is so good and is so unsettling because it empties us of ourselves, and it leads us to God and God alone, the author of our salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, there is the grace of God as it is in David's story. And that's verses 1 through 15. We've got another chunk of text, verses 16 through 31, and we have to ask, well, how are we to live with this God of grace? How are we to respond to it? How are we to make use of it? And as we look at verses 16 through 31, we find the instruction that we we need. And so Nathan tells David that he's not going to die for his sins, but he's going to be disciplined for it. And the Lord is not slow to discipline his children, nor is his discipline light. And so in verse 14, we find the rod of the Lord, and it is drawing near to his son. Nathan says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so the story moves forward as God disciplines David. Verse 15, the Lord afflicts David's son, his child. And David responds, verses 16 and 17. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with him. Just contemplate that scene, that the Lord's affliction has changed David, we, we saw David in, in chapter 11, and he was, he was a happy man. He was, he was roaming about his house. He's a man of sensual pleasures. He was feasting and eating and drinking, but the Lord's affliction has drawn near to David's. The rod is on the sun, and the rod is changing the sun, and he is humbled, and he is needy before the Lord. We see David instantly changed by the Lord. But then there's the men in David's house, and they watch David in the midst of all of this, and they are so troubled. David has become extreme. He doesn't eat. He doesn't rise. He doesn't respond. And their concerns multiply when when the child dies, and and they're reasoning in their heads. If if David's uh, attitude, if if his behavior is so extreme in this moment when the the child is living, what's going to happen to him when he dies? It's only going to go more extreme. And so they worry about David, verse 18. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. 
But these men are surprised because once David learns of his child's death, he immediately changes. We see it in the text. He rises, he washes, he anoints himself, he changes his clothes, he goes and worships the Lord, he eats, and everyone is stunned by David and what David is doing. They thought that David had lost all sense. They thought David was going to hurt himself. But once he hears this news against all common sense, against the way the world works, David rises up and lives once again. And so they ask, and we ask with them, verse 21, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. David gives an answer, and in David's answer, we find all the application our souls need. Verses 22 and 23. David says this, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child might live? But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And for paying attention, the, the whole chapter, this whole story from chapter 11 into chapter 12 connect at this point. Think about it. For what David did, his, his murder, his adultery, he deserved death. The death sentence was hanging over David's head. But what happens? God comes near to David and unexpectedly forgives him and removes the sentence of death. And so here is David. He has tasted the free and sovereign grace of God. And after tasting the free and sovereign grace of God, what does he do? Well, he hopes once again that this very same God might intervene and save his child from a death sentence. We see that something's happened to David as he's tasted the grace of God. He believes that death will not have the last word in this story. And so David waits and he fasts and he looks and he longs towards that end the whole time, saying in his soul, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me? (laughs) Who knows whether the Lord will do what he did for me, now for my son? Redeemed us through the blood of his very son, we are a people who have tasted the grace of God. And this grace ought to train and shape our hearts. Brother, sister, wherever you are and whatever circumstances you're facing, whatever difficulties are surrounding you or threatening to overcome you, no matter how deadly they seem to be, we ought to just say with David, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me. And we don't say that as a skeptic. We say that as someone who has already tasted the goodness and grace of God, having our hearts trained that even in the most deadly of circumstances, My God has saved me. He can save me again. And brothers and sisters, we ought to follow David's example and just cast ourselves before the Lord waiting for him to show his mercy and grace to us once again. And so that we have this great story before us. It's good. It reveals to us the grace of God as it is. We see God's grace free and sovereign. It's good. And then we're instructed how we ought to respond to this grace. We ought to to bank upon his grace, having our hearts trained by his grace. But we haven't finished the story yet. So I want to try to close it up with this. The son of David's adultery, the son that David fasted and prayed for, he, he died. We see it in the text, the Lord didn't intervene. But the story isn't over with the death of that child. Remarkably, this story that began with with adultery and murder, 
goes down into death. This child dies, but it doesn't end with death. Where does it go? It, it lifts up, and there is life. There is another son that is given. And not just any son, a son that will reign over David's house and build the temple of the Lord, a son most significantly loved by the Lord. Verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And she called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. What does the Lord do at the end of the story? In his grace, he replaces the dead child of David with another son. Just think about the movement of this story in chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's David. He descends in sin. At the bottom, there is death. But the Lord meets him in death and gives him son, a gift of life. And that gets us thinking as God's people, doesn't it? Because this whole story mirrors the great story of the Bible. What's the great story of the Bible? Humanity. They sin. They descend into the grave. And what does God do in the grave? God gives a gift of what? A son. Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And here's the great grace of the gospel. We see it, and so believers, all who are gathered here, hear the word of the gospel and believe it, because this is God's grace to you today. Let's pray. But Father, we rejoice in your great grace and we confess, readily so, that we often do not understand it or see it for what it truly is. And so we ask this morning, after having worked through this great story of your great grace towards David, that you would open our eyes to see it. That we would really see it for what it is. And that you would not only open our eyes to it, but that you would incline our hearts to your grace. And that we might experience it all afresh today. For your grace is before it, a son has been sent, and in him is life and salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen.